John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, it says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is come into the world. The 11th chapter of John begins with the sorrow of the sisters. And when we come to the middle of the chapter and the end of the chapter, we see the sorrow of the Savior. In this chapter, two sisters have one dead brother. And Jesus will meet the needs of both sisters. You see, each and every person, almost without exception, if you've come here today, and if you are north of 16 years of age, the chances are very good that one day you will find yourself next to a grave. The grave of your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your friend. Some of you have already made that visit, and you've done it several times. Jesus, in this chapter, meets both sisters. We first see the meeting of Martha, then we will see the meeting of Mary. Both have needs, and Jesus will meet both sisters in exactly the place where they need help the most. You see, Martha needs to know that Jesus is in control. And Mary needs to know that Jesus cares. Typically, when you find yourself in pain and sorrow, you have needs also. It may be the need to know that God cares. It may be the need to know that God is in control. In the end, it's going to give you an opportunity for faith to grow. By the way, that's one of the questions we're going to ask and answer as we look at this particular passage. What is faith and how does it grow? Can faith grow and even prosper in the garden of grief, in the place of sorrow? It was the famous poet Ralph Waldo Emerson who wrote, All I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. And you've come to a place in your life where you've seen things around you. You know that this world didn't happen by accident. 
you know and you see that there are good things and strange things and remarkable things, but there are also unknown things. And Emerson's quote is great. All I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. You will see things brilliantly and you will see things darkly and in that darkness it may cause you to ask and answer questions. Let me suggest to you that there are three kinds of faith. There is ineffective faith and weak faith and what I call effective faith. Now, ineffective faith attempts to anticipate God's plan. You may not understand what I mean when I say that, so let me give you an example. Ineffective faith is wanting God's will, but wanting God's will your own way. You'll remember the story in the Old Testament of Abraham and Sarah, how they were both given promises. Abraham, you'll recall, was promised that he would be the father of many nations. And his wife, Sarah, was old, way too old to have a baby. Let me just be blunt, older than me. If she had a child, it would have to be a miracle child. And the Bible is filled with people who try to take matters into their own hands and there was a point in Sarah's life where she gave her handmaiden to Hagar her handmaiden Hagar to Abraham. Now you have to understand something. Sarah believed in God's promise for offspring. She believed God's promise that Abraham would be the father of nations but she didn't believe the promise for herself. And so she wanted God's will but she was Wanting to do it God's way. Unlikely that she wanted to do it God's way. She wants to accomplish God's plan, but do it in an ineffective way. And by the way, ineffective faith is marked by a conspicuous lack of trust in God. Ineffective faith is marked by an unchanged life. Ineffective faith knows the words of faith, but they seldom get past those words. And so your faith is ineffective if you're trying to do God's will your own way. Your faith is ineffective if it's marked by an unchanged life. Weak faith tends to lack endurance. Weak faith gives up easily. Weak faith falters. Weak faith starts off with good intentions but lacks the will to see it through to the end. Weak faith lacks endurance. Weak faith gives up easily. It falters. Peter, you'll remember in the New Testament, he stumbles at a particular point in his walk with Jesus. But even in that stumbling, he looks to Jesus. Weak faith is at least some faith. And you'll remember when the disciples first heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, If you read the New Testament, you'll discover that at first blush, they didn't believe the report. You'll remember the women gave the testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. You'll remember that both John and Peter ran to the tomb. You'll remember that Peter looked into the tomb and his first response wasn't a response of belief. Oh, wow, everything that Jesus said about the resurrection is true. He still didn't believe until he himself met the resurrected Jesus. And by the way, when he met the resurrected Jesus, he understood 
not just the plan of Jesus, but the purpose of God in Jesus' death. You see, weak faith can become strong faith with the help of Jesus. And you'll remember, effective faith believes Jesus. Effective faith depends on the Lord. I want to encourage you to think about something for just a moment. When I use the word faith, what do I mean? Am I talking about Roman Catholicism or Protestantism? Am I talking about a system of belief? No. In one sense, faith is a willingness to, a desire, if you will, to trust God completely. And that willingness must translate to a complete dependence on God. This is a willingness to know God. It isn't simply a performance. It's not a ritual. It's not a desire to impress our family. Faith is complete and humble obedience to God's word and God's will. This is a readiness, if you will, to listen to what God says and then a willingness to do what God says. Faith is our trust in an almighty, all-caring, all-controlling God. Effective faith believes Jesus and then rests on what Jesus has done. Effective faith grows, listen carefully, under pressure. Effective faith becomes stronger through endurance. Effective faith is hopeful anticipation. Now, when I say hopeful anticipation, let me give you a little illustration. When I was a little boy, I loved looking forward to my birthday. You know, when you're six years old, you love your birthday. You get presents. You get gifts. You get special treatment. And you'll notice that when children are small, they always want to grow up quicker. They're not six. They're six and a half. I never say, I'm 52 and a half. There comes a certain point in your life where it's really not your birthday that you're looking forward to. Now, faith and birthdays have at least one thing in common. Remember, with your birthday, you can anticipate gifts. You can anticipate treats. You can anticipate special treatment. And you can anticipate surprises. And that's what birthdays do. They combine assurance and anticipation. And that's what faith does. Someone once said, faith is the conviction based on past experiences that God's new and fresh surprises will be ours. So, how would you characterize your faith? Ineffective? Weak? Is your faith sort of like the way James Bond takes his martinis? Shaken, but not stirred. There's a little chill up your spine because your faith is constantly being challenged, questioned. There are two words that characterize effective faith. The first one is sure. The second one is certain. Both words require a secure beginning and a secure ending. The beginning, if you will, the beginning point of faith is believing in God's character. That is, 
He is who he says he is. And the end point is believing in God's promises that he will do what he says. And there's the rub. Many of us believe in God and many of us believe in God's promises. But what about for me? What about for my life? And what about for my circumstances? And what happens when you don't see what you perceive to be a promise coming to pass? For Martha and for Mary, as they come to this particular point in their life, in their sorrow, in their grief, and in their pain, they're not just simply looking for answers, but they're looking for a Savior. Look at the place of sorrow again in verse 17. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now remember, for those of you who have been following along in our study in John's gospel, Jesus is beyond the Jordan. It's a day's journey. When he discovers that Lazarus is sick, he delays two days. It takes one day for the message to get there. He delays two additional days. He returns a final day. And when he returns, read When you read in the tomb four days, read all human hope is gone. Because the process of decomposition has already begun. You may not know this, but in ancient Israeli traditions, they have in certain traditions like the Mishnah, it suggests that people in the first century in particular believed that the soul hovered in around the body for three days. And when the process of decomposition would, would began, it was believed that the soul or the spirit fled because there was no hope for the soul or the spirit to return to the body. Now, obviously, that's not in the Bible. But it becomes a picture, if you will, of the belief, at least at this particular point, that the body, in order to be raised, it isn't just simply going to be some modern miracle of resuscitation. Lazarus has to come back from the dead. And you'll look at verse 18. It says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Now remember, Bethany is near Jerusalem. And we've already talked about the fact that That the enemies of Jesus, those who stand in opposition to Jesus, those who hate Jesus, those who want to kill Jesus are just a few miles away. So remember, the coming of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus is risky business at this point. And in verse 19 it says, And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Jesus is returning. Lazarus has been dead for four days. In order to understand the sorrow and the pain and the circumstances that Jesus is coming to, you need to know a little bit about Jewish funeral customs. William Barclay, in his excellent commentary on this particular passage, writes, and I quote, As many as possible attended a funeral. Everyone who could was supposed, supposed, in courtesy and respect to join in the procession on its way. One curious custom was that the women walked first, for it was held that since women by her first sin brought death into the world, she ought to lead the mourners to the tomb. 
at the tomb, memorial speeches were sometimes made. Everyone was expected to express the deepest sympathy, and on leaving the tomb, the others stood in two long lines while the principal mourners passed between them. But there was this very wise rule. The mourners were not to be tormented by idle and uninvited talk. They were to be left at that moment alone with their sorrow. Now, just like we have customs for our funerals, the Jews also had customs. When the loved one died, they would take the dead body and they would place it in the home in the house. Now, while the body is being prepared and wrapped, it was forbidden to eat or drink wine. It was forbidden to wear phylacteries. Those are those long tassels that, um, that were sometimes had boxes at the end that was filled with scripture. You were not allowed to engage in study. No food was prepared in the house. And food that was brought into the house could never be eaten in the presence of the dead. And as soon as the body was carried out, they would rearrange the furniture back to normal. And after the body was laid to rest, a meal was served. And typically, the meal was prepared by friends of the family. And the meal consisted of bread and hard-boiled eggs and lentils. And those eggs and those lentils had symbolism. They, they represented a circle. In other words, that life was forever rolling, rolling, rolling towards death. And deep mourning lasted seven days. The first three days were reserved for weeping. The first three days, you didn't anoint yourself. You didn't put on your shoes. You didn't engage in study. It was not business as, as usual. You wouldn't even wash yourself. And the week of deep mourning was then followed by 30 days of what was called lighter mourning. In other words, there was still sorrow. There was still pain. When mourners left the tomb, they would typically turn to one another and they would say, depart in peace. But rarely would they mention the name of the departed. But if they did mention the name of the departed, it was always under the auspices of a blessing. And so three days of deep mourning has already passed. It's now the fourth day. And you'll note in the passage where it says in verse 19, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them. Here, the word comfort is very interesting. It's a very long compound word in the Greek language. It's the Greek word para, mutheo, mei. It is a compound word which means to walk alongside in tenderness and consolation. Remember, we've already brought up the fact that when you are around grieving people, hurting people, remember what we've already said. We step lightly around a broken heart. And so it means consolation. And Jesus arranges his coming at a time when human help and human hope is gone. When I was reading this passage, it reminded me of something. And that is that there's a kind of a negative comfort or false comfort. And by that, I mean a dangerous comfort. 
You'll remember that when the Lord told Abram to leave his family and friends and go to the land of promise, it meant leaving the place of companionship. It meant leaving the place of comfort. It meant leaving the place of security. It meant leaving the place of friends. It meant leaving the place of familiarity. And don't get me wrong, home, friends, and family, that's a very, very good thing. But sometimes God is calling you to a different life, to a different lifestyle. And that means leaving the past behind. It means leaving family and friends who stand in opposition to the things of God. And you'll remember that Abraham obeyed. And he walked away from his home for a better home. He walked away for his, from his friends for, for new friends and a new family. For greater blessing, for greater usefulness. And certainly the Bible tells us that God offers comfort when we face trials and when we face difficulties. And we also know that God comforts us so that we might be able to comfort others. You'll remember in the Old Testament, Job's friends were supposed to be comforting him in his grief. The neighbors, the family, the friends who had gathered around Mary and Martha were supposed to be comforting them in their grief. Human comfort may be welcome, but it's limited, isn't it? Human comfort is limited. Now, I want you to just think carefully for just a moment. If when you're standing next to that grave, when you're in the midst of that horrible trial, when you're standing at that great difficulty, and you need to know that God is in control, and when you need to know that God cares deeply and personally for you, where do you get hope? Where do you find comfort? Where do you receive assurance? It's faith. And by faith, I mean confidence in the character of God and the promises of God. You'll remember in Job chapter 16, in verses 1 through 22, there's a series of speeches that are given in the book of Job. There's some valuable lessons about offering comfort. In Job chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, Job, when he's addressing these people, he says, I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Do you understand what Job is saying? In the end, Job's counselors wound up not comforting him, but condemning him. They didn't comfort him. They condemned him because, remember, they came to the conclusion that the reason why the catastrophe had fallen on Job, that somehow it was his own fault. That somehow all ten of his children being wiped out was his own fault. That his goods were stolen was his own fault. And was it his own fault? No. Remember in the opening chapter of Job, the Lord speaking to Satan says, Consider my servant Job. There's none like him in all of the earth. And by the way, pray to God that he never says that to Satan about you. I'm just teasing. I hope he does say it about you. I hope he does. Have you considered my servant? That there's none like her. Like him, he loves me and serves me. 
prays for his children and for his parents. He serves faithfully and completely. Job had done all of that and more. And you'll remember that in the book of Job are the answers to life's deepest questions given to Job? Not really. You know what answer is basically given at the end of the book? God shows up in his presence and in his power. And there will come time when when you will get one of two things, an answer or a Savior. And trust me, when the Savior shows up, so will your answer. By the way, Job called these men miserable counselors. But his words give us useful lessons if we're willing to embrace those lessons. As a matter of fact, if you have an opportunity, reread the book of Job with particular emphasis on chapter 16 because there are several principles there that have served me my whole life in ministry. Number one, be careful what you say. Don't simply talk to talk. Remember we've already said, step gently around a broken heart. Number two, be careful of pat answers and hollow sermons. And number three, beware of criticism and accusation. And number four, make every effort, make every effort to put yourself in their place in the pain of sorrow, in the place of heartache. And number five, offer help and encouragement. Now this from a man who needed comfort. If ever there was a person who needed comfort, it was Job. And if ever there was a person qualified to say, this is how you give comfort, it was him. By the way, who's best qualified to give hope and comfort? Is it wrong to suggest the person who has had great trial and great loss? Is it wrong to suggest the person who has effective faith and who loves the Lord. There's some interesting contrast that we're going to see as we continue our study in John chapter 11 between Martha and Mary. Remember what we've already said. When both women meet Jesus, Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, meets Mary, excuse me, meets Jesus, and Mary remains in the house. In the Bible, Martha is always seen as this energetic person. And Mary is the one who quietly sits down. You'll remember elsewhere in the New Testament that Martha's busy serving, serving, serving. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha begins to complain and says, Jesus, rebuke my sister. She's sitting around on her lazy Middle Eastern you-know-what. And here I am slaving away. Now, here's what Martha's expecting Jesus to say. Why, you're right. Mary, you lazy person, get up and do some work. But his answer shocks everyone. He says to to Mary, or to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, Martha. (laughs) 
Mary has chosen the better portion. Look at verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. This is, by the way, completely counter-cultural. Under normal circumstances, this would never happen. It was considered impolite to leave your guests. But Martha gets up and she meets Jesus. And you look at the greeting, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's verse 21. Now, when Mary meets the Lord, we're going to look just a little bit ahead. Look to verse 32. It says, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Question. What's the same about the greeting? It's almost identical, isn't it? Both Martha and Mary have almost identical words to say to Jesus. The words are identical, but the striking difference is the posture of the person asking. Martha is upright and running. Mary is prone on her face, kneeling, perhaps even prostrate before the Lord in worship, by the way. Do you think standing and worshiping puts a different spin on what your words are? I'm going to suggest that they do. One sister, Martha, she needs some intellectual reinforcement. We've already said that she needs to know that Jesus is in control. And the other sister, Mary, needs some emotional support. Martha needs to know that Jesus is in control. But Mary needs to know, does Jesus care? Really care? Fundamentally care? What is it that you need to know this morning? What is it that you need to know about God? About Jesus? About control? About care? Look at verse 21 again with fresh eyes and a fresh heart. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Clearly, Martha believes something about Jesus, doesn't she? Does she believe that Jesus has the ability to heal her brother? It's not a hard question. What do you think the answer is? Yeah, the answer is yes. Clearly, Martha is in pain. Clearly, Martha is hurting. Clearly, she is confused. But clearly, she believes in Jesus. The broken heart speaks, sometimes with reproach, sometimes with complaint, sometimes with weak faith. We almost hear her say, you can almost hear the, the words underneath the question, where were you? Where were you? We told you our brother was sick. We sent the messenger. We know that you can heal. We know that you can heal from afar. We know that you were delayed. We know that you're here now. We question God. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you make this trial different? 
Why didn't you make this trial go away? I need to ask you a question. Do the best you can with it. What is the difference between a healthy, honest inquiry and a dishonest complaint? What's the difference? Do you need a little help? Let me just give you some suggestions, okay? A dishonest complaint will impugn the character of God. A dishonest complaint will impugn the promises of God. A dishonest complaint will suggest that God isn't fair and that God isn't right and that God isn't good and that God isn't correct and that God doesn't know what He's doing. That is a dishonest complaint. But when you're in pain and when you're hurting, it makes perfect sense that you're going to ask. I'm going to ask you another question. Does Martha really believe Jesus is in control? Does she really believe the circumstances of her her brother's death and the subsequent sorrow for her family was what God really wanted? A complaining, limited faith questions God, questions what's best, questions whether Jesus knows what he's doing in our life and in the lives of the people around us. There is a sense in which Martha suggests that if Jesus had been present, he may have acted differently, that the trial could have been avoided. It would seem that Martha, even at that moment of reproach and complaint, she catches herself. She catches herself. And then she immediately shifts direction. Look at verse 22. But even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Isn't it interesting that Martha's statement takes the past into consideration, Lord, if you had been here, and the present into consideration, even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. But somehow the future's left out. The future's conspicuous by its absence. John Phillips writes about this passage, quote, She half believed that Jesus could raise her brother. After all, he had raised others, but her words outran her actual convictions as she later showed. And then he points to verse 39. Read it for yourself. Jesus said in verse 39 of this chapter, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Does that sound like the words of a person who's saying, Hey, Lord, now's not a good time to raise him from the dead. Hey, you know, Lord, it might have been a good idea immediately after he died to sort of resuscitate him when all of, everything's intact and everything's working. But now is not a good time. Now is not a good time to raise him from the dead. What, what, what would you do? 
what would you do? Her faith is weak and limited. She knows she can ask Jesus to ask God and that God can do anything. But somehow there's a disconnection. A connection that Jesus himself is God. That Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. And that's seen even in the promise that Jesus makes in the revelation of truth. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, remember, in that pain and in that sorrow and in that grief, Jesus gives a promise, one rooted in an Old Testament revelation. But she does not understand that when Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, does Jesus mean like like pretty quickly? Like before we get to the end of the chapter, your brother is going to be back in business. She misunderstands what Jesus says and suggests and believes at least momentarily in her mind that Jesus is reiterating an Old Testament promise that was given by way of revelation like shadows. The Old Testament only hinted at the condition of the dead. Hints were dropped in the book of Job about a future resurrection in Job chapter 14 verse 14 and in Job chapter 19 verse 25. You'll remember the psalmist in Psalm 16 9 said, no wonder my heart is filled with joy. My mouth shouts his praises. My body rests in safety. On verse uh, 16 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That verse, 16.10, is repeated throughout the New Testament as proof of Jesus' resurrection. In verse 11 it says, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. Job, in all of his his calamities, cries, I know that there lives a champion. You know it better this way. I know that my Redeemer lives. And says this. And a sponsor who will one day stand over my dust, yet another shall rise as my witness. God, whom my eyes will behold, and no strangers. Later, Job writes in Job 19:23, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And there he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Though after my skin worms destroy this body. Yet in my flesh I will see God. The promise That a body, a real body, the same body that you live in, the same body that's planted in the dirt will come back to life. That's what Christianity teaches. That's why I get so many questions about this. People will call me on the radio program. Okay. If, is it a good idea to get cremated? Because after all, how is God going to put your ashes back together? Or my favorite. Okay, imagine that you're buried, okay? And uh, you're in the dirt and your body decomposes and then the grass grows and then the cow eats the grass and then somebody milks the cow. How will God ever put me back together again? 
And I say the answer is very, very easy. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because if you can believe this line from the Bible, you can believe anything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the... If God can create the majesty of all that exists, can He find you? Even if you're overboard and the sharks eat you? Yeah, the answer is yes. But some Jews, like the Greeks, believe that the soul went to a place of shadows. Just like today. There are people who believe that when you're dead, you're dead. There are others who believe that you pass into a shadowy world of spirit. But the Bible teaches that there is a real resurrection. And it's clear that Martha misunderstands because in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. How are we to gauge Martha's response? Does the promise of a resurrection make the hurt go away? By the way, there's a lesson even here. What does Martha really want? A lecture about the resurrection? pain, the sorrow, the emptiness, the grief inside of her heart. She wants something more. And Jesus will give her exactly that. Look what it says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, No. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. This statement is the sixth statement in a series of statements that are given in the Gospel of John called the Great I Am Statements. You'll remember some of them. I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 51. I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12. I'm the door, John 10, 9. I'm the good shepherd, John 10, 11. And now he says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus relates to Martha, that the subject of the resurrection may indeed be interesting, but Jesus relates to her personally and individually. Jesus doesn't simply, listen carefully, He doesn't simply accomplish the resurrection and the life. He isn't simply the person who goes, hey, in the end, I will bring your brother back to life, but isn't that cool? And isn't that a great promise? No, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That is, He has the power to give life. He has the power to take life. He has the power to restore life. He does it all according to His own will. And this is the amazing claim. Jesus is in effect declaring, listen, that all life and every life exists by His will and by His power. Jesus is basically asking and answering the question, how can a dead person come back to life? And it's only by the will. And it's only by the power of God. Only by the will. And only by the power of Jesus. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday when I first heard this passage preached. When I was an unbeliever, I was listening to someone talk about this passage. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though we were dead, yet shall he live. And, and I, I'll never forget. I, 
I'll never forget, I asked, could, could this be true? Can this Jesus bring dead people back to life? But I wasn't interested in just simply satisfying a theological curiosity. I needed an encounter with the living Jesus. I needed to know if he could bring my heart back to life. My stone, cold, dirty heart. I needed to know that the emptiness and the darkness and the death that resided on my soul, if he could bring me back to life, I didn't just need a theological answer to my question. I needed to know if Jesus was real and if he could change me. And that's exactly what Martha needs and Mary needs. Jesus was letting Martha know that what she needed in life's most painful circumstance wasn't just a pat theological answer to a difficult question. Jesus was letting Martha know that death can't stop God's plan for life and that death can't stop the plan that Jesus has. Listen carefully. For Martha. For Mary. And even for Lazarus. Why is that important to you? Because sometimes when you ask a question, it isn't just simply the answer that you need. It's a person that you need. I'm not alone. Millions of people have experienced the love of God in Christ, the forgiveness of sin in Christ. People are dead in trespasses and sin. People are dead in their feelings towards others. People are dead to joy and dead to honor and dead to the meaning of life. But Jesus gives life. Edward the Confessor famously said, Weep not, I shall not die. And as I leave the land of the dying, I trust to see the blessings of the Lord in the land of the living. Unquote. I love that. We call this the land of the living. But it really isn't. It's the land of the dying. This last week when I traveled to uh, the Yucatan Peninsula and I went deep into the jungle in the, in the place where the pyramid at Chichen Itza is located, the place is surrounded by ruins and in those ruins there are literally hundreds of feet of walls and etched in limestone are skulls at every place that you turn, skulls everywhere because Chichen Itza was not a place of life but a place of death. It wasn't a place of celebration. Life, it was a place of celebrating death. But guess what? In Jesus Christ, we're on a journey that ends not in death, but in life. He changes everything. And if a person, particularly if a dead person wishes to live, Jesus can give life. If a living person wishes to continue to live, it's Jesus who continues to give them life. And listen carefully. Only Jesus can give life. And only 
Jesus can prevent the dead from dying. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation of the Christian faith. Not only does Jesus rise from the dead to prove his claims, but it becomes the basis of a future resurrection for each and every one of you. And so Jesus is speaking a physical death because Christians certainly physically die. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul wrote, I want to ask you this or tell me this. Since you believe what we preach, that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that dead people don't come back to life? In the early church, in the earliest church, there were people who went to the church who denied the resurrection from the dead. And I know what some of you might be thinking. Okay, I believe that Jesus can bring people back to life. I'm just wondering if he can bring me back to life. That's what I want to know. The ancient Greeks believed in an afterlife, but it was an afterlife without a body. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but not in the body. Jesus in Christianity affirms life after death and life in a body and the certainty of a resurrection. And look at verse 26. Jesus says, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha this question. Do you believe this? Is that what you believe, Martha? What in the world does this mean? Well, the Greek language gives us a clue. Whoever lives and believes in me, it says, Con, ah, pothanen, though he die, yet shall he live. The Bible's promise, the person continues to live. They live in another world. They live in a real world. They live in a... In a, in a dimension of existence in the presence of God. The believer who passes from this world doesn't go to sleep. The person doesn't enter a dream state. The person doesn't become some sort of disembodied spirit. The spiritual world exists now. The spiritual dimension where God exists and where Christ exists and where the holy angels exist, where those who have died in Christ, they continue to exist. And Jesus says, do you believe this? And by the way, to believe in Jesus means to believe everything that Jesus says. Isn't possibly true. But that it's absolutely true. It's not simply good enough to hear the word or acknowledge the content of the word. Do you believe this? Do you believe it with your whole heart? Do you believe it with your mind and your strength? And again, the vast majority of people who read this text believe that Jesus might be able to bring people back to life. The question is, will he? Will he bring you and me? Do you believe in a Jesus who is willing to save others? but not willing to save your, save you. And by the way, when you come to the end, in verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. The pronoun is emphatic in the original language. It says, I, even I, I, even I, believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. 
But you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, and I believe that you have the power over death itself. Effective faith depends on God. Effective faith believes what Jesus says and does. Effective faith grows under pressure. Effective faith becomes stronger through endurance. And Martha admits belief in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God who has come into the world. But she wants to know, really, 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 really know. Is Jesus in control? Her sister's going to want to know, does Jesus care? Martha needs to know, is my brother alive and safe? And Jesus is about to prove his statement. Is not just religious rhetoric or evangelical exaggeration? Jesus will take us from speculation to answers to faith to assurance. Because before the chapter ends, Lazarus is coming back to life. What is it that you need to know this morning? Do you need to know that he cares? Do you need to know that he's in control? Do you need to know that his character and his promises can come true not just in other people's lives, but in your life? Let's stand for just a moment. We're going to have a closing song. And I'm going to invite you to ask and answer that question. Is Jesus real? Can he come into my life? Can he change me? So let's just have a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, they read the text and they wonder, is this possibly true? Is this person who he says he is, can he do what he says he can do? Can he change me from the inside out? Can he... Forgive me and wash me and cleanse me. Is there hope? Is there salvation available for me? Is there life for me? Can this Jesus take something dead and bring it back to life? Lord, we know that the scriptures say Jesus is the only one who can take something that's dead and bring it back to life. That's why all those other things just simply don't work. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person in the emptiness and the sorrow and the desperation of their own heart. They're wondering if the Bible is true and if the promises are true. Lord, I pray that they would know that it is. And Christians, while you're praying, I'm going to invite you to consider the claims of Jesus. You know, when Jesus called people, he called them openly and publicly. And you may wonder, well, why do you do that here? Well, because again, 
Jesus extends the invitation openly and publicly and you're surrounded by people who love you and care about you. But if you want life instead of death, if you want hope instead of despair, if you want forgiveness instead of condemnation, if you need the certainty that God cares. And come. He'll prove Himself. He'll forgive you. And while we're singing this song, there's going to be people available to talk with you and pray with you. While, we're, while we have this closing song, you're, I'm just going to invite you to come up and stand right before me. And you'll be glad you did. Because guess what? Jesus will prove Himself real. That his forgiveness is real. That his promises are true. So let's let's sing this song and I'm inviting you to come.